Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you will get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. And you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign, Season 4, all about movements. So we got a great first episode for you this season, and we will be discussing all things movement building with tips for how to build a successful movement. We'll also talk about common mistakes that organizations make when they're starting up trying to build a movement going forward. So really exciting stuff. Absolutely. I mean, like I said in the trailer, I'm super excited for this episode, but really for the whole season, because movement building, as our listeners know, is our bread and butter. It's a thing that we enjoy doing at the Campaign Workshop and one of our favorite topics to engage in, to talk about, to help train advocates to do this work successfully. So this is only a continuation of that. Joe, in your opinion, what's the most important thing that groups need to be aware of when they're engaging in movement building? Well, I think the first is to actually have a goal, have a mission, and know that everyone gets nervous about starting, but you got to start somewhere and don't be afraid the risk to start, to put it out there, say, hey, I'm thinking of doing something around this. Ask for help, ask for support, but don't put it off. And then also know where you come from and where your movement comes from and where you want it to go. Having a historical perspective as well as really being able to reach out to folks who have done this, whether it's in your sphere or in a different sphere, is so powerful and can really help grow your movement very, very quickly. So that's a little bit, but we got a lot more to talk about. We have sort of beaten this drum in all of our seasons that having goals that help you achieve your larger mission is key. It should be the one thing that you know what it is and your entire team knows what it is. When you're doing it across movement building, whether your movement's a year old or decades old, there should constantly be the, an understanding of goals that lead into the larger mission you're trying to solve. But I also think groups really need to understand or be aware of, right? Like, what are the some come of the common mistakes you and I have seen? We've sort of seen across different movement spaces that they could potentially fall into and how to really avoid them. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. So, First, it's explaining your issue in a way that people really understand it, getting out of those jargon traps that people often have that we talk about it in one way because I've been involved in an issue for a really long time, but it doesn't convert to other people and engage with them in a clear way. So it's that elevator pitch, that message is usually a stopping point for people to build a movement. If they can't get the message right and they can't get that outreach, that can really be hard. A good example of a, a movement that I worked on early on was the smoke-free movement, trying to get bars and restaurants to be smoke-free. Seems very obvious now, but there are still parts of our country that are not smoke-free, that don't have smoke-free bars and restaurants. And 
being able to say that message in a very clear way that everyone has the right to breathe clean air is really important. Clean, smoke-free air really resonated with people in a very simple, compelling way. And so you need to make sure that you're getting that pitch down and effective communication is crucial for mobilizing support and attracting people to a cause. Absolutely. And like that didn't happen overnight. That was campaign after campaign. And now the culture has shifted around it. Like it is so jarring now for me to walk into somewhere that allows smoking to happen indoors. It was a huge cultural shift. And a movement is an issue that becomes a cultural shift. That is what a movement is. A movement isn't just an issue anymore. It is a change. And I think the compelling is as important as the clear in the messaging. I think back to the marriage equality movement and campaign that happened where in the beginning, the clear message was we are being denied rights, like the LGBTQ plus community within this country was being denied rights. But that didn't seem to be compelling to folks, right? It wasn't the thing that was driving folks to support us or come to our side or be persuaded. And so there was a shift there to really think about the compelling piece of it. And that was putting stories, faces, and names and really appealing to the hearts and changing minds of the voters to get them on board with that. So like remembering that, yes, you can have a clear message, but also ensuring it's compelling. I think it's really also critical for groups and organizations to understand their primary larger goals and understand the sort of secondary goals that are the steps that help them get there. I think one of the common mistakes that folks forget to do is the required sort of larger long-term planning and critical strategic thinking to deeply understand what those should be and the difference between them. Your primary goals really are those large systematic changes, those cultural shifts that we see that marriage equality right now is the law of the land. We are dealing with other battles in the LGBTQ space, but that has been a cultural shift. The smoke-free has been a cultural shift. Like larger gun reform would be a cultural shift if it happened. The shift to moving to more electric and clean energy, those are large movement shifts that weren't just one campaign or happened overnight. And that your secondary goals really help to build towards those. Those are those one-off re-electing champions to legislative bodies that are making these decisions. Are we winning ballot measures across the country to show the like national support? Are we building awareness so folks understand that there is a problem and they can be part of the solution? Are we continuing to gain that support? And all of that really comes down to planning and making sure that you understand how to get folks motivated, keep them motivated, and how to make sure everybody's working on the same page. Yeah, it's making sure your tactics work with your goals. And that is a critical thing. And sometimes people jump to the tactics first without working on the goals. Don't do that. (laughs) We write a lot about that. Think about the goals first and then think about those tactics that work for the goals. You also want to make sure that you're investing the time and effort into really developing a message and doing the outreach that that takes. When it comes to messaging, I think often we get very siloed. We use jargon, as I've said before. We only talk to the people that we've already talked to as opposed to being expansive in our message. This is part of the research phase of a movement. 
You have to do outreach. You have to engage with people. You have to talk to people that maybe you have never talked to before, likely you have never talked to before, and bring them in. It's what we call getting to the coalition that you want versus the coalition you already have and making sure you're doing that outreach. So you have to be inclusive. You have to test your message. Now, there are lots of expensive ways to test a message, but get in front of a group of people, ask some questions, talk about your message, see how it goes. That's a way to start, but you got to start somewhere. Do that outreach and keep expanding and make sure that the message works for your goals. Just like we talked about how the tactics need to work for your goals, make sure that message matches up. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, and you might have to change your message to make sure it fits the goal you're trying to achieve. That's already a lot of information we're giving, but we're going to have episodes dedicated to each of these pieces so that we can dig into them throughout the season. But we're super lucky today to have such an expert in all of these things and in progressive activism and movement building, who's joining us for the interview today, which is the one, the only Heather Booth. One, I'm super excited for the interview, but Joe, what are you looking most forward to in chatting with Heather, whom I know you've known for a while? So I've known Heather for 27 years, but when I met Heather, it was pre-Google. So this was not something where I could sit. I was working in an office very near her, and it was not something I could sit and look at my phone and say, oh, here's all the things that Heather Booth has done. I'd have to go to a bookstore to figure that out. And... Heather has been involved in, beyond being an amazing human, which we're going to talk about, Heather has been involved in so many movements, Freedom Summer, The Janes, Midwest Academy. She also has, part of that has been building training as a movement. It's part of why Martine and I are actually here today is because of what Heather did in the training space, which is amazing. And we could just do a show about that. She developed the DNC training manuals, which I have in my basement somewhere and many, many people have. But we just have a lot that we got to ask her about and go through and talk about. And I can't wait for you to hear the interview. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's definitely been inspiring to me over my career in the space. And I'm super excited for our listeners to get to learn from really such a pillar in the progressive movement. So we're super excited about this episode and the full season, but you'll get the interview right when we come back. So we'll be right back. Heather Booth is a leading activist and pioneer in progressive politics strategizing and mobilizing for abortion rights, civil rights, and workers' rights, among many other causes. Heather started her work as an activist in the 1960s, being involved in the civil rights and women's movements of the time. She started Jane to help women receive abortions in a time before Roe v. Wade. Heather started the Midwest Academy in the 1970s and continued serving on various organizations like the DNC, where we worked together in the mid-1990s when she ran the training programs. She also worked for the NAACP and AFL-CIO and has been at the center of organizing and mobilizing around key progressive policies like gay marriage and financial reform. Heather, thank you for joining us. I am so glad to be on. I'd be glad to be on anyway as a way to talk to a broad audience who are concerned about movement building, but I'm especially glad to be on because I am on with Joe Fold, 
<laughs> Joe knows this story that we first worked together when I was at working at the Democratic National Committee and I became the training director. Joe was a key person on the political staff. He was one of the senior trainers that we had in a large training session that we organized. And when we asked people for their evaluations of the training session, Joe's evaluation included someone who said, Joe Fold is God. <laughs> and so <laughs> to be in the presence of God, I mean, what a better way to spend a day. <laughs> well, so first of all, Heather, what I want to make sure that it's clear, I did not fill that out myself. <laughs> and second, I just want to say that I've known you for a really long time. What's so, Heather, great about you is that every time I see something or hear something about you, there's another layer to your story that I get to hear about. So I'm so honored to have you on the show because we knew each other at a time pre-Google. So it wasn't like, you know, we were working with a coworker. You weren't really able to Google the coworker. Anyway, I can't wait to ask you a lot of questions and talk to you. So let's start first with, Heather, tell us how you got started in movement building. You know, to some extent, I had the good fortune of being born into a family that believed in love. And so I grew up knowing what love was, how to receive it, how to give it, and came to believe that we have to build a society that is more loving to each other. And more than that, my parents really were such good moral people. They believed in not only doing good deeds and being kind to each other, but also making this a better society. And then with those values, I became active in the civil rights movement. In 1960, I joined the support of those who were demonstrating against Woolworths that wouldn't let African-Americans sit at the lunch counters in the South. And then in 1964, I went to the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project where Northern students were recruited to support the extremely courageous African-Americans in Mississippi who were being terrorized. And none of the officials in the state seemed to, in fact, they probably were in a collusion with the terror and even the murder that was going on. And I learned from that effort and others that when you organize you can change this world, even when it seems most hopeless. And within a year of the Mississippi Summer Project, where three of the young volunteers, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, were killed at the hands of the Klan. Within a year, we had a Voting Rights Act. And what I realized is that often it's when times are most threatening that you can make the greatest progress if people organize, particularly with love at the center. And so that led me from one engagement to another, to the women's movement, movement against the war in Vietnam, to union organizing, setting up a training center for organizers, and ongoing work. So Heather, when did you know that organizing and movements was going to be the center of your life? When did you realize that? Were there parts where you didn't think that? Because there was definitely a part of my life in politics where my parents were trying to convince me to get a real job. And, you know, this became my real job. So I want to know for you, how did that happen? When did that happen? I knew that I wanted to act 
on the values that I grew up believing in of justice and fairness and working for freedom. Would I be a teacher? I did that for a year in a school for high school dropouts. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience and led to also organizing that meant that the principal who actually had fought on the side of the fascists in World War II <laughs> didn't allow me back in the school because he, he thought that I was inciting student insurrection, which is really not true. So I knew that I wanted to act on the values that I believed in. But whether I'd be a teacher or a social worker or some other occupation, I really wasn't sure. When I was about 40, I remember at my 40th birthday party, I realized, gee, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> this is what it is. But at that time, there wasn't really a profession that people saw as being an organizer and doing it full time, at least not in the worlds that I had been in. And in part, the training center that we founded, Midwest Academy, helped to promote the idea that you could be an organizer, you could dedicate your whole life to this. And so that's really been the profession and the calling that I've been in. But there are others who, whatever you are, whether you are a teacher or a stockbroker or whatever you are, you can commit your life to ensuring that you also work to build a better world. And again, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. So let's start with the Midwest Academy story. I want to hear a bit about how you started Midwest Academy. I want you to know that in our advocacy work, we still use the tools from Midwest Academy to this day that we have, you know, clients and folks who've gone through Midwest Academy training. And it's a foundation, I think, of advocacy training. Tell me how that started. In the 1970s, while there was the emergence of some new movements of the Nader operations, there were some Alinsky organizations developing, the environmental movement was developing, a women's movement was developing. Many of the movements of the 60s were fracturing. The civil rights movement and many of the alliances around that were fracturing. The anti-war movement against the war in Vietnam had fractured even as we were about to end the war, help to end the war. Uh, student movement was going in, turning on itself in many ways. And I was looking for some way to bring coherence for how could we move forward when many of the new folks coming into making this change needed help on fundamentals. How do you have a meeting? How do you raise money? How do you speak to the public? How do you figure out what to do when you don't know what to do? At the same time, I had been working in a research operation and a clerical worker found that her paycheck was cut and without notice. And when asked, when she asked the employer, how come her paycheck was cut? She was a single mother. He told her that the woman who used to sit next to her was going to become her supervisor. And so her paycheck needed to be cut to give more money to the supervisor. It sounded so outrageous. I said, look, why don't we all join together, write up 10 principles of how you can have a decent operation, a process. What is the policy? How 
is it reviewed? What are the sick days? Where do you go if you have a concern? And the employer fired me for having organized that. And two and a half years later, I won a back pay suit for union organizing with the National Labor Relations Board. And that was a time when the labor, it was still very hard to get something through the Labor Relations Board. Until Joe Biden, it was extremely hard to get something through. This president really has made changes at the National Labor Relations Board, but labor law is still so biased against employees. It's very hard to win a union contract and to get union recognition and to organize at the workplace, as we see with the courageous actions of Amazon and Starbucks and and the surge of union organizing going on now. But still, the laws are not in the favor of people coming together at the workplace. But I won this two and a half year back pay suit. And I also swore that I would never be fired again. And so the combination of wanting to do something to provide strategic focus and support and ideological focus and a skills training within the movement and that I had some additional funding because I won this back pay suit led me to decide that I would start this training center, Midwest Academy. I also had gone through another training center. There were only two that I knew of in the whole country at that time that trained organizers. And I went through that training center and they said things like women couldn't be organizers. And maybe they said it to test would I get angry and fight back. But whatever the reason, I also think they really believed it at that point that women went off and had children and they didn't see how you could have children and and be an organizer or choose not to have children. But it was uh, guys oriented training. And so the first session of Midwest Academy, which we started in 1973, was focused on training women organizers. And uh, out of it came remarkable organizers who now still, some have passed away (laughs) in 73, but many are still helping to move the country in a better direction. And the focus of the Academy was to provide Guidance on how you develop a strategy, certainly for the tools. How do you hold a meeting or raise funds or speak in public? But also it was to provide a context, how to understand the economic, the political, the racial context, and how were other movements formed and what are the lessons we can learn from them? Amazing. So again, so many things that I can ask you and I'm going to try and get through all these questions, but like, When did you start to realize that the impact that Midwest Academy was having? I mean, it has an impact to this day. I, again, will tell you, as I said before, that I have lots of clients who've gone through it. We utilize the tools. I have a dog-eared copy of the book. Talk to me about when you started to actually see impact. Well, we saw the impact really from the first. This is 50 years ago that we started. And by the way, we are celebrating our 50th anniversary. Appreciate anyone who wants to support Midwest Academy. I guess we, I we will put a link in the show notes to, to donate. And yeah, for <laughs> Terrific. sure. Terrific. It's, it's really, I, I no longer do the training, so I feel I'm not doing self-promotion by promoting it. But the uh, 
directors, Yomara Velez and Eric Zachary and the staff are just uh, really extraordinary organizers themselves. The Academy was set up to also be a strategic planning center. And so at the start, we helped to formulate what then were new concepts in organizing. We helped to create the working women's movement and to support it. We helped to build a model of statewide organization before there had been local organizations, more in an Alinsky model, and uh, national organizations, but very few at the statewide level when we realized a lot of the decisions were being made in the states. Many of the groups were just single issue groups in the country then. You could be an environmentalist or a senior citizen or a, a student organizer. But what if you were a senior environmentalist and you were going back to school? What if you were all of them? Or how do you connect with all of them? And we created multi-issue organizations, which in itself was a new development. And then we decided that the McCarthy era had created a division between labor and community groups that was very hard to cover, to cross. And so we built a national alliance. We looked for issues that would build that alliance between labor and community. And we found one during the energy crisis and I became director of the Citizen Labor Energy Coalition, again, trained by Midwest Academy, but allied with this other organization. And that alliance and Citizen Action, which was one of the organizations I also co-chaired to build this model of statewide multi-issue organizations built in national alliance. And it's really provided some of the infrastructure of even progressive organizations that exist till this day, many of which are allied with either People's Action or Center for Popular Democracy, and the groups still continue. So the Midwest Academy became a center for strategic planning, and we could see the results even as we were moving along, even as we weren't sure where it would go. And as some say, and there's a group in New York called, we made the road by walking. We figured it out as we went. And then I say one other uh, major development, and that is in 1980, when Reagan won, before 1980, very, very few organizations that worked on issues were related to elections. Very few. You know, Sierra Club, Planned Parenthood, almost any organization now that is so, many of them are so heavily involved in elections, either in partisan or uh, even nonpartisan ways. And we decided that you had to be involved in elections. Now, the Academy is a 501c3 nonpartisan organization, but we end up training people for how you can manage participation in elections uh, within the legal guidelines and then also are allied with separate organizations, uh, as is legally appropriate, that are involved with moving the organizing plans into elections and the election plans being built to further the development of organizations. And all of those were relatively new ideas in the 1970s and early 80s. Absolutely. So now this gets up to close, I guess, to where you and I met, which was then we'll go into the 90s. We'll skip ahead a little bit. 
And you and I met at the DNC at the Democratic National Committee. And it was 1995, I think, is when you and I first met. And you were building this training program at the DNC, which is first of its kind, still have the books. And <laughs> my question to you is, talk to me about how that started. How did how did that like come about where you really built that and would love to hear more about that? You know, I had been sort of anti-electoral or at least not very involved in electoral politics before 1980. I did work in Mississippi and the politicians there were siding with the Klan and others. I felt I didn't want to be part of that politics. In Chicago, there really were only five reformers, we call them, on the original Mayor Daley's city council, five out of 50. And so I worked for those five, but it was, it didn't feel to me like a way to win. And then Reagan was elected. And I realized, as my friend Alice Palmer said, if you don't do elections, elections do you. And so I became heavily involved in elections, very active in Chicago. I was in Mayor Washington's campaign. And in 92, I was the field director for Carol Mosley Braun, who was the first African-American woman elected to the Senate and who stood for so many progressive concerns on health care, forced the debate about race on the floor of the Senate and, and other issues. So I could see how elections mattered a lot if you were involved with it, particularly in ways that also built your organization. In 1993, after Bill Clinton was elected, I came to work at the DNC and worked on the outreach for what was then the uh, Clinton and Hillary Clinton healthcare plan. And because that plan lost in the 94 elections, Democrats were severely uh, weakened and had many, many losses across the country. And one of the things that it exposed is that there wasn't the level of campaign staff that had the skills commensurate with very serious challenges. So the DNC under Don Fowler decided to, and may he, a blessed memory because he has passed away. He decided to drive ahead and create what we called campaign academies over the next took about eight months. We trained, I think, about 3,500 people in large-scale sessions held every six weeks in different locations around the country that had between 200 and 550, I think was the largest number that we had held in different areas. Each session had between five and eight tracks. And you were tracked, was it a statewide manager, a legislative manager, communications director, uh, research director, data, field, and other areas. And within each track, we gave people an intimate coaching relationship with a lead trainer like you, yourself, Joe, we were so grateful to get God on our side, for every five participants so that there was someone who could coach you through and you were a team. And yet you would learn with others on your specific track. And then you had the feeling of being overall in a training with hundreds of people. And further, the training worked on a simulation plan of an imaginary state called the state of flux. 
and it had five congressional districts and a ballot measure. And each time you'd learn a subject like how do you do targeting? How do you write a communications plan? Those would be written into your own plan. And at the end, the plans were judged. We also had a talent bank developed. So the individual participants were also evaluated. And there was a job fair at the end. So we could link people up who went through the training with jobs for various both campaigns, unions and other organizations. So that was the training. It really had a remarkable impact. I still hear from people who are around now. And actually, I think it is would be worthwhile to consider reinstating that kind of training. It's an it's a, an expense. It costs real money to send to develop something like that. But I think that the payoff in talent to meet the challenges we face is really worth the effort. Oh, absolutely. I will tell you, one, I learned so much from that training and watching you build that training. That is, frankly, how I learned how to run a training. I had been a trainer at that point, but had not really seen anything before or after to that scale, right? It was training on a mass scale. And, you know, we still do training for groups and organizations, a campaign workshop. We do simulation-based training where we write simulations. And, you know, so, so many of those tools that I learned came from that. So one, just a tremendous amount of gratitude for teaching me how to do that. It was amazing. And I agree with you, right? I don't think that people spend enough time or enough resources on training and getting people trained. It's something we're a big believer in, but also you were such a pioneer, whether it was Midwest Academy or the DNC, in making that, frankly, a thing and a need and having that education exist. It's just amazing. So thank well, you. Joe, it's so generous of you to say, and it's also people like you who helped make the training successful. And one of the things that we realized is that the people who were trainers Many of them, we were also training. Now, they wouldn't have signed up for a training session because they were experts. Many of them had run campaigns. But there were additional things. All of us, all of us, certainly I needed to learn. And we could learn from other experts when we were in one unified setting. So I'm going to move us past the DNC and go into like... We have a really diverse uh, group of folks who listen to the show, and it's everything from people who run organizations who are just getting started in organizing. But you've had such a long career in mobilizing and organizing communities. When people are getting started to do mobilization in community, what do you think is some of the most important aspects that people miss sometimes that you want to start with? If you had to give some basic advice to say, Hey, you're starting a project to do mobilization, whether you've been working on it for years and you're revisiting the project or you're brand new to it. Where do you start? Well, the most important thing is that you start. It's <laughs> that you don't say, I don't know enough. I'm not really sure. I don't, you know, uh, will I be good enough? So much of the society tells us we're not good enough. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. When in fact, we are, and we will also learn by doing it if you're open to learning. So your first point is it is important to start. It's important to find others who have the shared values and want to move with you. And it's pretty important right at the start that the nature of your starting group 
reflects the ultimate organization you want, at least in who's in it, so that people of different backgrounds don't come in as an afterthought, but are there from the start. But I think the three big principles, there's so many things that could be said on specific techniques, but the three big principles to keep in mind in organizing. One is to have a strategic plan, to know where you are going, not just to think about one tactic and another. Sometimes you do, you know, there's a terrible shooting or murder of an unarmed African-American and you say, hands up, don't shoot. That was a tactic and an important one. And it helps spark a movement around the country. And then to win the changes we want, though, we need a strategic plan. What are your goals? Who can grant you those goals? How do you pressure that person? What constituencies do you need to apply that pressure to apply and build your power? What are the resources you need? What are the tactics you need? What's your message? So the first is to have a strategic plan based on your values and to know your values. That's one. The second is to know that organizing is really based on relationship. It's based on people caring for each other and wanting to do things because they like each other and they've been there for each other. You've been there for me, Joe. I'll be there for you. I'd be there on the, for you anyway. <laughs> but you build relationships. They matter. You cultivate them. And the third is that you have to know we are about building power. And that means winning and changing people's lives and giving people a sense that they can make the change if they organize. And I always say with love at the center. So those three principles, having based on our values, having a strategic plan, ensuring the relationships are built and winning and building power. Let's start at the end of that, because, I mean, I think there's so many pieces here, but that winning part to me is often like the biggest hurdle, right? One, I don't think that people always recognize what a win is and and that often in movement building, like they think the win has to be this gigantic thing versus a small incremental victory, which I think often is so important to keep movements going. So recognizing that win to me is often been a hurdle to say to folks, you know, you're actually winning right now. And I think to me, I've seen that like as a hurdle. I don't know. Give me your thoughts. You know, when the Academy started, one of the ideas that we promoted, this was in an era in which many people had ultimate goals. We wanted a revolution in society. We wanted a full transformation. And anything that didn't meet that criteria was seen as perhaps not even worth it. Or some people weren't even fighting for things that give people a sense of confidence that if you could win a smaller thing, maybe you could win a larger thing. And that confidence that we're on a winning team, we're moving forward, my life is getting better, then you want to be part of it. If you're in a group that says, we're losing and we're always going to be losing, you attract the people who want to, <laughs> who want that as an alternative, but it's not most people. So we introduced an idea or expanded on an idea of non-reformist reforms, that in addition to winning specific victories, there are some kind of reforms that actually are structural reforms. And by winning them, it increases our power and decreases the 
arbitrary power of those who are currently unaccountable but make decisions on our lives. An example, I was involved in childcare organizing at around the same time that I was starting Midwest Academy. I had my first child in 1968 and the second one in 1969, and there was no city-funded childcare in the city in Chicago, which is where I lived. And so we tried to set up a childcare center, and there were 32 steps the city told us to go, go to the, the plumbing division and the building code division and the lighting division. We went around, and then we ended up in the first office that we were in, and we had made no progress. So we said, we've got to change the laws. We built a group called the Action Committee for Decent Child Care. We called it ACDC. People should be we're mindful coming out of a women's movement. And we had three basic demands that there should be city funding for child care, that they should revise the child care licensing code. Those would be real wins. And the third was a one of these structural reform demands, and that would be that there would be a parents and child care provider board that would review the licensing requirements and budgeting designed for child care in the city. We won all three, including a million dollars for child care when a million dollars was real money. And we built the Sojourner Truth Child Care Center across <laughs> in a church basement across the street from where I was living. And by the way, the current head of Moms Rising was one of the kids in that child care center. <laughs> so you're going to have benefits that you may not even know the benefits you'll have as you move on. But I think this concept to have in mind that winning matters and certain kinds of wins should have a priority that actually change the systems we're fighting. A little while ago, you talked about strategy versus tactics. And I also think this is a hurdle that people have when planning and building movements and organizations is that they focus on the tactics first versus the strategy. I find this to be a hurdle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's easy to want to move as fast as you can and to say, let's go down to City Hall. Let's do a Twitter storm. Let's hold up signs. Let's say, honk if you don't like something or other. All of those may be great tactics. And the tactics, there's guidelines even for that. Tactics should reflect what your people are comfortable with. Is it something that makes builds their confidence? It's one of the reasons often the first events might be in a community center or a union hall or a place that your church or congregation, so that they're places that we're comfortable in. The tactics matter, but one tactic should lead to the next. And at each event, if possible, you can even say, and the next time we'll gather is here, or this is where we go next. But to know how one piece fits into others, and it's actually power building, you need a whole strategy. One of the things the Academy, Midwest Academy offers is the training in strategic planning and this Midwest Academy strategy chart. And from the chart, you then build a timeline of what's one activity and another and another, often starting with where you want to end up and making your timeline go backwards to where you are now. But the 
important thing is that you have a sense of where you're going and what your priorities are, because the world will throw so many things at you. Your leader can resign. Your opposition can charge you with disreputable activity. There's a an explosion in the middle of the city and you need to respond to that, though it had nothing to do with what you were originally planning. Unexpected things happen, but at least you know what your main plan is about where you want to go, what you want to say, who really matters to build the power that you have. And so every tactic fitting into an overall plan helps really keep you on track and even allows you to revise your plan. But to do the revision, you need a plan. So, all right. So you've been a part of so many movements and so much organizing. And I know this is going to be a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to try and see if you can answer. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite movement or a favorite time where you're like, this is something I, I, you know, I remember, like, I'd love to hear that. You know, do you have a favorite child? <laughs> I mean, I, I can never answer that question, right? Of course, right? I, I understand. So... In many ways, whatever I'm working on is my favorite because it has the excitement of now. And particularly right now, I also see younger people coming into this. When I started, I often was the youngest person in the room. I'm now at 77. I'm often the oldest person in the room. And what's exhilarating is to see how many young people are coming to make the change that's needed for these times with new and creative ideas that fit the culture and the current moment. Of course, there are times that I was involved that I particularly loved either where, you know, I met my husband at a sit-in against the war in Vietnam that I helped to organize. Well, that's certainly a favorite. But, you know, I was involved in demonstrations against South Africa before in about 1967, 68, there were 10 U.S. banks that had bailed out South Africa and there were sit-ins then. And then, I don't know how long it was, maybe 30 years later, over 20 years later, there was another round of the anti-apartheid demonstrations that were much more visible around the country. And I was a part of those also, uh, different arrests in different eras. And so one action can not only lead to another, but it makes me remember the the other times. I led the campaign for financial reform, trying to get control of the big banks. It was exhilarating and we made some progress and we have so much further to go. And so now we realize we have to do even more and hold the biggest banks accountable. So one movement, one organization, helps lead to another, and I enjoy implementing lessons that I've learned from one to another, and so many are enduring, civil rights, the women's movement, immigration reform, and the struggles continue. Speaking of those struggles, I'm going to ask you these two questions, and you can answer them back to back, but tell me what you worry about most right now, and then what you're most hopeful about. In a way, they're related. There's certainly lots of things to worry about. The rise of a, I don't know if you call it a neo-fascist, but this MAGA faction in the United States, but even around the 
around the world, uh, an anti-democratic, anti-freedom movement that is hateful and often violence prone against the forces fighting for democracy and justice and freedom. So I worry about that. I worry about what's happening to our climate, what's happening to young people, what's happening to senior citizens. But I think my greatest concern would be the diminished belief that people can have that we actually can change the world. And if we don't believe we can change the world, then people won't be part of the effort to make that change happen. And my greatest hope is that I do see people making that effort, joining in on one issue after another, whether it's climate or unionization or women's reproductive freedom or investing in our own country, in our lives, having democracy at home, democracy abroad. There are so many hopeful signs. And the most important thing, and I think the greatest basis of hope is to see what I said at the start of this conversation. And that is that I have seen how even in the most treacherous, challenging times, that when we organize with love at the center, we have made change. And when we organize now with love at the center, we will make change. But only if everyone who's listening and all your numbers magnified, join in and do what you can. Do the social media, write the stories, tell the stories, hold up the signs, do the creative work, make the art. Do whatever you can. Give the funding. Recruit our friends, talk to our families, and do the work every day to make this a more just, democratic, and free world. Thank you. That's amazing. All right. So a couple things. So if you are, back to like one of the earlier questions, if you're just getting started, how do you recommend folks start? I know like do something, get involved in some way, but do you have any other ideas on like the hurdles people have to overcome for this, which is often a lot, but how do you keep at it? Well, the most important thing is to start. I think you start by also identifying those who'll be partners to work with you, who have a shared vision, and you clarify through talking and writing about it, what is your vision and where do you want to go and developing that plan. I think for those who are just starting one of the key barriers is actually self-confidence, believing that you can do it, that you do know enough, that you are worthy enough. You know, this question of confidence and just doing it is so important. When I was in Mississippi, people used to often say, are you willing to die for freedom? And I very much wanted to live. But if that was really even the risk, I was willing to take it if it meant we could advance real freedom. But now I think the issue is different. It's not, are you willing to die for freedom? It's, are you willing to live for freedom and justice and dignity for all? And what that takes is, it's a belief in the unseen. And by starting and working with others, taking one step and then another, and then evaluating it, 
listening to people, building the relationships, designing the strategic plan, and organizing for power that will last. And if we do that, we have changed this world. And I believe we will change this world for the better. So last question. Can you recommend a resource if folks wanted to read a book, something that either you thought has been helpful or inspiring to you that folks who are either in organizing, getting started, that you would recommend? Uh, there's so many. And actually, Joe, I'd ask you what what your what you would recommend. So there's so many that are inspiring to me. I actually, about two weeks ago, went to Alabama to a bunch of the historical civil rights sites. And oh. on that trip, I read Just Mercy, which I thought is a fantastic book. It's so important. Yeah. And so I read that. I think that's a great book about organizing. There's so many like books, I think, that are out there that people might not think are good organizing books that are other books that I think are, again, I still have my dog-eared copy of the Midwest Academy Manual, right? I don't know that I have That's the fourth edition. certainly a good place to start. That's called Organizing for Social Change. The three authors are Bobo, Kendall, and Max. We're now writing a new version of it and should be out before the end of the year, we hope. Amazing. So the Midwest Academy Manual is certainly great. There's a book that just came out by Ellen Cassidy called Nine to Five. It's about building working women's organizations. She was a student in the first Midwest Academy class, but it's an inspiring story with two basic elements. One is it tells her life as a young organizer, overcoming her own fears and questions about how to do this work. And the second half is the story of building these remarkable groups the working women's organizations and nine to five and winning when secretaries and clericals were assumed that they could barely, they weren't trusted in many places to do much more than get the coffee and type the memos. But in fact, they organized in one power. There are also other, there's some movies that I found very important. There's a movie called Salt of the Earth. That's a movie out of the 1950s. And it's the true story of a labor strike, I believe, in New Mexico. And the making of the movie itself is itself a story because the movie that came out in the blacklist period, the star of it was deported and the film wasn't allowed to be developed, but it was developed. It's one of, the, it's really a great organizing story. It's a story of a minor strike, but in the, in telling the story, it's the story both of the miners and the mine owners and that struggle. It's the story of the Mexican-American miners and the white organizer and a racial struggle. It's the struggle of the women who are the wives of the miners and the men they are with. And there's that struggle. And it really is an inspiring theme. They not only win the strike which they did at that time in history, but also they transform themselves and build a powerful union at that point in time. There's another remarkable movie called Burn about international corporate impact. It's a Marlon Brando movie by uh, Ponte Corvo. 
I also want to say, Heather, that I would be remiss if I don't mention some of the movies that are about your work, right? So, like, there's, like, the James, there's, you know, some documentary stuff that you've been a part of. We'll put those in the show notes, too. You have an incredible story as well. well thanks that... for mentioning that. And the James, by the way, that refers to there was an underground abortion service that started before Roe. And because three people talking about abortion in Chicago before the law was changed was a conspiracy to commit a felony, we called the group Jane. And there's a documentary out called The Janes. There's another one with Sigourney Weaver named Call Jane. There's several other films about it, as well as this one about my life in organizing called Heather Booth Changing the World by Lily Rivlin. I'm actually in two book clubs because I think reading can be so inspiring and such a learning experience and also build relationships. In my two different book clubs, they've each gone on for over 30 years. And one of the ways that I even survive for the long haul is by having these relationships beyond my work that build the relationships and give me also joy in life. I'm also in three theater groups. One is a Shakespeare group. One is a sort of current plays, and one is an experimental theater group. And I go with friends to see it. So it means that building those relationships, having joy in our life, joy in our work, is one of the ways to sustain ourselves, as well as following our values and finding a purpose that's beyond ourselves, driven with a strategic plan. Heather, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for a lovely conversation. It's an honor. Wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks. And thanks to both uh, Elizabeth and PD who were assisting to make this all possible. That the power's behind the throne. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the, the power period, right? They actually make uh, this podcast work. So we really do appreciate all their great work and Anyway, thank you. And a uh, shout out to your wife, to Amy Kurtz, because there's a the issue of being a movement couple and having a life with the support and the challenges of a movement life from one part of a movement couple to yours. I thank you for the model you provide and the lifelong commitment you've had. Thank you so much, Heather. I really appreciate it. And we're back. Wow. So that's a great interview. And there's so much there to talk about. When you hear Heather talk, she has so many things to teach us, like identifying partners to work on movements who have a shared vision, centering love and hope in even the most treacherous, challenging times like now, but a quote from that interview was, when we organize with love at the center, we will make a change. And she is so right. Her work is incredibly impactful today, and we're just lucky to have her come on the show and teach us. I feel like I learn something every time I hear <laughs> Heather speak. And it was really amazing to just genuinely hear about her experience, what she has lived through and is currently still doing through the different movement building spaces she has been involved with from working on stuff from the civil rights era to understanding how she was involved in feminism, abortion access, what she's currently doing, how I know her in the training space and like the impact she has made there. It's really just a phenomenal example of 
how you can also build a career and have longevity in the movement space. When I train candidates, I often tell them they don't teach you the part about getting elected in school. They teach you about the office. And I think similarly, they actually don't teach us in school what it could look like to dedicate your life to movement building and change making. And Heather is a perfect embodiment and an example of how to do that, how to do that with love and an amazing positive framework. And I just loved hearing her say she still has so much hope even through everything she's been through and that her favorite movement is whatever movement she's currently working on because there are so many and to even just have that positivity and that mindset helps me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Heather Booth is the definition of leading from a positive place that she centers that in the work she does and she is an inspiration. And I'll tell you one Heather Booth story, which is Heather Booth The organizer's organizer calls me every year on my birthday. I am positive my mother is listening to this show. And sometimes Heather beats my mom on calling me first. Sorry, mom. It's okay. But that's who she is. She like gets up every day and is working on the next thing. And you can't help but be inspired by it. I also get a Facebook message, a very sweet and thoughtful Facebook message from Heather Booth every year on my birthday, thanking me for the work that I'm doing. You're totally right. She understands one of the pillars of organizing, which is relationships are key. And how do you maintain those relationships and genuinely be thoughtful about maintaining and managing those relationships? Not as just a leveraging point or a transactional point, but she really knows us and she really wants to know many people across the movement. I think based in that positive framework and that space of love, and it is very inspiring. Yeah. I mean, we would not be here if it was not for her. We're just lucky. Well, listen, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you have questions or comments about movement building, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Our information can be found in the episode description. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to stay tuned for next week's episode on building a career out of movement building with a dear friend of mine, Gregory Allen Datusendena, who I'm super excited to share that interview with our listeners. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold, breaking down how to win a campaign. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.